Uh, Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us uh, your word uh, for our good. Uh, We confess it to be true and living, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce to the division of our soul and spirit, to expose our hearts before you. Uh, We pray in your mercy that your word would do its work and that we would know its power, that sin would be revealed in our lives and also we would see and know the glory of our Saviour Jesus to deal with our sin and bring us peace with you. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to receive it with faith as the word of the living God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Someone you know uh, says uh, they're a Christian, Uh, uh, but uh, you you know them, they say they're a Christian, but they get drunk regularly every weekend. You approach them about it, and he says he knows he's free and forgiven, and it's a great way to get alongside non-believers. Uh, There's a Christian woman you see at church every Sunday, but her whole life is directed to getting a bigger house, a more expensive car, and building her share portfolio. And you read in the paper about another denomination discussing ordaining or having already embraced ordaining into Christian ministry people in active same-sex relationships as the American Episcopalians did when they ordained Gene Robinson in 2003. Now, all of these people are confident that they are good Christians, confident of being saved. But does their behaviour mean their confidence is ill-placed? Might yours. Can we say to some who claim they're a Christian, your behaviour denies you the right to that name? and if persisted in, will also deny you salvation. Are their behaviours, as well as doctrines, which if continued with, put people outside the church, outside God's saved people? That is, are their behavioural limits, boundaries to membership of the people of God, or does anything go in Christian communities that we should tolerate, accept, Anyone, whatever their behaviour, as long as they say they're a Christian. So that's the issue. Are there limits, boundaries? And if so, who says what they are? Who enforces them? To whom do they apply? And why is it important? Now we're going to answer those questions this evening by listening to God's Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. But we need to recognise from the outset that this is a conversation we may feel uncomfortable about for all sorts of reasons. For example, many of us have been taught that there are lots of behaviours that are actually no one else's business, that what consenting adults say do in private is just their concern. Do we want to be portrayed as busybodies? And our society doesn't really believe in moral absolutes, right and wrong. There's what's right for you and what's right for me and no one should impose their view of of what's right on anyone else. To say there's a behavioural boundary which must not be crossed, well, that's just arrogant. And who wants to be thought arrogant? More, some would say that the language of right and wrong is just used 
by people in power to coerce others is a form of moral bullying. And especially where you talk of excluding some on the basis of their sexual activity, well, you are being positively harmful and these days may even be breaking the law. Who wants to be seen as a harmful moral bully? And isn't this judging others when Jesus himself said, judge not or you too will be judged? And besides all this, if we're honest, don't we all just want peaceful lives and to stop being concerned about the behaviour of others will surely only bring trouble and grief. Yet, despite the discomfort and risk of being thought intolerant busybodies, arrogant moral bullies, judgmental, of becoming entangled in other people's business, we actually have to engage with these questions. Are there behavioural boundaries to the Christian community? Who says what they are? Who enforces them? To whom, they do, to whom do they apply? And why is it important? And we need to engage with these questions because it's quite clear that the Apostle Paul does think the Christian community is one with clear behavioural, moral boundaries, boundaries that the congregation are responsible to maintain for the good of all. In fact, he seems shocked that the Corinthians don't also think this way. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? It appears that someone in Corinth is conducting an ongoing affair with his stepmother. It doesn't appear the father, if he's still alive, or the woman uh, were members of the congregation, but the offender was. Now, such affairs were known, just not tolerated, in Roman society of that time, where a second wife might be the same age or younger than an adult son from the first marriage. And even if the father had died, that relationship was still regarded as incestuous and the man and woman were condemned by Roman society and they could attract the severe punishment of banishment. What troubled Paul was the complete lack of response to this state of affairs by the Corinthian congregation, their complacent smugness. And you are proud, you are arrogant. Now, Paul's picking up on his description of some of them, uh, of, of those who thought themselves as influential and important, the description he gave of them in chapter 4. Now, some are arrogant. And you might remember how Paul had described them as convinced that they have all they want, as rich, convinced that they've begun to reign as wise, strong, honoured, in contrast with the apostles whom they regard as foolish, weak and dishonourable. Now, Paul is not saying that they are somehow particularly proud of this man's action, but he is shocked that it hasn't dented their estimate of themselves as believers who had arrived as people with more insight than the apostles. Instead of their complacent pride that did nothing, says Paul, they should have mourned and acted. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? 
As a congregation, says Paul, they should have been grieved to the heart by this sin if they had had the insight to understand what it meant for the individual, for the congregation and for the reputation of their saving God. And instead of continuing to accept the person doing this, perhaps because of his wealth and status, they should have acted by putting this man out of their fellowship. Now notice, Paul throughout is addressing not the man, but the whole congregation. It's the whole congregation that should mourn and the whole congregation that should act. And Paul now seeks to reverse their inaction, calling for decisive, open action by the congregation in conjunction with himself as the Lord's apostle. Even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus' hand, that one over to Satan for the destruction of flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Even though Paul is not physically present, he is with the congregation in spirit. Paul, as Christ's apostle, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that is, with Jesus' authority, has already passed judgment, pronounced sentence on this man. And he calls on the congregation to join him in executing that sentence with the backing of the effective power of the Lord Jesus who stands behind his apostles, who's given them the power to bind and loose, and who is active in his churches. And so together... They're to hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So let's make a few observations on what's being described here. Firstly, the sin is open and persisted in. It's not just a matter of private conversation or rumour. Paul elsewhere, like our Lord, will insist on two or three witnesses. The church doesn't act on hearsay. But secondly, the action to be taken is also to be open and transparent, the action of the whole congregation, not just a private group. And thirdly, the judgment of the whole congregation is seen as an acting, a judgment given through Jesus' apostle in which the Lord Jesus supports and makes effective by his power. But what exactly is it that they are to do? What does it mean to hand someone over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? Now, some have suggested it involves some kind of curse which by some kind of almost magic will ensure the person will die, a bit like pointing the bone. But the verse does not speak of the destruction of the man's life, but of his flesh, his sinful nature, And there is no evidence of such kinds of curse formulas at all in the New Testament. In line with Matthew 18, it's better to understand that Paul is telling them that they must put the man out of the congregation, that this is a symbolic way of describing what is explicitly described in verse 2 and in verse 13. This man is to be made to live and act solely in the realm where Satan, the prince of this world, rules. So no longer for him will there be the warm support and acceptance of living amongst God's people. No longer will he be in the community where Jesus' word rules, where he can hear the gospel read and taught. 
The intended outcome is that his flesh, his sinful nature, the nature seen in his self-satisfaction with his own moral judgment against God's, his pride in his own stance, his determination to live to please himself and not do what God says, the intended outcome that his flesh will be destroyed by by this exclusion, hard as it may be. And the goal of this destruction is really his repentance, that he might be saved on the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. So the church, says Paul, is to act now to make the reality and danger of this man's situation plain to him so that he might come to his senses, repent and be saved on the last day. Are there limits to behaviour amongst Christians? Are there behaviours that, if persisted in, threaten to exclude someone from having a place amongst God's people? Yes. Who's expected to maintain them? To act well here, it's all of us, the whole congregation. God expects this action by his people and the Corinthian inaction is a cause of apostolic rebuke. But why is it so important? This is what Paul makes clear in verses 6 to 8. Your boasting's not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore let us observe the feast, not with the old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul uses two related images to bring home both the danger of sin and the necessity of action If we, the congregation, are to be who we are, people saved by the Lord Jesus. So firstly, he says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Uh, Leaven is not quite the same as yeast. Uh, Leaven is like sourdough starter. Uh, They didn't leaven their flour by adding new yeast to every batch of dough. Rather, they'd take a small amount of material from the last batch of dough and place it in the new batch. And the influence of that old leaven would then permeate, go through the new batch. No part of the new batch escapes. And the presence of the leaven determines, in a sense, the shape and the character then of the whole loaf. So Paul is saying that carrying over into congregational life the sinful lifestyle of our pre-Christian past when we didn't know God, threatens the character and identity of the whole congregation. Let behaviours from our old sinful lifestyles from the world go unchecked and that will in the end determine the shape and character of the congregation so that in a sense we'll become just like the old loaf, just like the world. Let, for example, angry abusive speech continue And you'll have a fearful, unwelcoming club dominated by one or two angry individuals, not a church of Jesus. Let sexual immorality continue and trust will be destroyed, relationships unstable. Let any sinful behaviour continue and you will be the world and not God's holy people. 
So they're to clean out the old leaven. They're to get rid of it. They can't let sinful behaviour, the attitude that lives to please self, that sees oneself in charge of one's life and not the Lord Jesus, they can't let that attitude be carried over from the past into their common life. And only this way can they be what they really are, that new batch of dough, a new unleavened batch, with our shape and character, our identity, shaped by our relationship with Christ, by being saved by Christ. And we do have this new identity because we have, as believers, been saved by Christ. And here Paul introduces his second related picture. For he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul's going to draw on the Jewish Passover to reinforce the possibility and necessity of getting rid of, not carrying into our following of Jesus, sinful patterns from the past, from the world. Now, as you heard read, at the first Passover in Exodus 12, the Jewish people were spared from death by the blood of a lamb smeared on their doorposts and lintels when God judged Pharaoh and Egypt by slaying their firstborn. That judgment was also the means of finally liberating Abraham's descendants from slavery in Egypt and starting them on their journey to the promised land, to their new life as God's people in covenant relationship to God in God's presence. The Jewish people were commanded to remember that salvation and liberation every year by celebrating the Passover, by repeating at the time of their liberation every year the meal their ancestors had shared on that night, sharing in eating the Passover lamb. That celebration also marked the beginning of what was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when they had to remove all leaven, all the old leavened dough from their houses. In fact, if anyone ate leavened bread as part of the Passover meal or in the week after it, they would be cut off, excluded by death from God's people. Eating leavened bread and sharing in the Passover were completely incompatible. And you actually had to share in the Passover to belong to God's Old Testament people. So Paul is saying to us that we now have a Passover to share in Christ. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed to spare us from death and bring us salvation in liberation from slavery to sin and death and the devil. Our Lord has died to make us the people of God, to put our feet on the path to the land of promise, the new heaven and earth. And it's impossible to have a share in his death and still be leavened with the old leaven of life lived in rebellion to God. The old life where we ignored God's word, rejected God's rule, and lived for ourselves to please ourselves has to go. It is completely, says St Paul, incompatible with sharing in Christ's sacrifice. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with the old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, Paul focuses (coughs) on malice and evil or wickedness as distinguishing features of the old life, malice being the opposite in those days of civic virtue, the opposite of benevolence, uh, something that 
benevolence seeks the welfare of others, malice seeks their destruction. And wickedness is understood as something then that corrupts others. And malice and wickedness have to be replaced by sincerity and truth, by transparent commitment to live as followers of the Lord Jesus, transparent purity, transparent honesty, transparent faithfulness and integrity are to characterise us and our relationships with each other. The death of our Lord Jesus itself speaks of God's abhorrence of sin, of how seriously God takes it. And so such sin can have no place amongst those forgiven and given life by that death. So why take this decisive action against open, continuing sin in the lives of those who claim to be Christians, members of God's people? It's because persistent sin is the leaven of the old way of life in rebellion to God and it will distort the shape, the character of the whole congregation, changing it from within to be like the world in rebellion to God and not like the holy people of God. It's because persistent sin is absolutely incompatible with having a share in the death of the Lord Jesus who died to liberate us from that slavery to sin and bring us to God so that we could be God's holy people, people given new hearts to do his will. Believers in Jesus, that's you and I if we're believers in Jesus, both individually and collectively, now have a permanent festival to be celebrated throughout our whole lives, a sharing in Christ every day that's always to be characterised by a sincere and genuine following of Christ, having our identity and character shaped by his cross, his death for our sins. To have a congregational life that is not grieved by open sin and does not act to stop it is to have a congregational life that is not founded on the death of Jesus, that has repudiated the wisdom and might of the cross of Jesus. And to repudiate the cross is to cease to be the people of the Lord Jesus, cease to be God's people. But so far, Paul has only pointed to one behaviour that is out of bounds. And it's been an easy one to take a stand on, really, hasn't it? Because it's behaviour that was condemned by the surrounding society as well. But are there other behaviours, as I've suggested, that put us out of bounds outside the people of God? Behaviours that the church should address even if they are not, even if they're approved by the surrounding society. Well, let's listen as Paul clarifies a Corinthian misunderstanding of what he had written to them earlier. I wrote to you in a, in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I didn't mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, otherwise you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy and idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person, for what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from amongst you. Now, it appears that the Corinthians had thought 
Paul was encouraging them to leave the world, to create some kind of exclusive Christian community. But that, says Paul, was never my intention. Paul knows people in the world are going to keep on behaving like, well, they're going to keep on behaving like people in the world, people who don't know or honour the true and living God. And we will have to keep mixing with them as long as we're living in this world. Paul's not encouraging Christians to try and enforce Christian standards on non-believers. Those who are the subject of instruction, the sexually immoral people that they were not to associate with, were actually, verse 11, people who claimed to be a brother or sister. That is, people who claimed to be Christians, followers of Jesus, and yet were engaging in sexual immorality. Now, Paul, again, is not here talking of someone who occasionally falls into a past sin and is grieved by that and hates it, repents and confesses. He's talking of people who claim to be Christian and openly continue in their sin and say, I'm all right, I'm safe. If someone does that, says Paul, keeps on living in disobedience to God's word, perseveres in or starts behaviours in defiance of what God says, the Christian community has to help them see the incompatibility of their lifestyle with their profession of faith in Jesus and help them see that their hope of being saved by Jesus is actually not there. They're to help them to see that by not associating with them. And Paul has a list here, verse 11, as he does in other parts of Scripture, in the handout, of behaviours which, if persisted in, put you outside the community of God's people. Sexual, the sexually immoral, greedy, idolaters, verbally abusive, drunkards or swindlers. Now, it's not a random list, but one relevant to the Corinthians and their society, but it's also one very relevant to us, for whom these words are written. So let's pause and think about them so that you can perhaps test your own life. The sexually immoral. Paul will have more to say about this in chapter 6. Sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside the marriage of a man and a woman to each other. And I mean married. You're married when you say, I do, and not before. Now, sexual immorality was very common in Roman and Greek societies and was accepted as normal, at least for Roman men. And it's very common today. But we should remember that our Lord includes sexual immorality amongst those things that come from the heart and defile a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. These are what defile a person. Oh, then there are the greedy. Now, this speaks of a grasping covetousness. Uh, Corinth was a very materialistic society where success and status were measured by how much you had, and it was respectable to want and pursue more. That lust for more is also pretty common in our society, isn't it? So much so that we actually might have trouble identifying greed in ourselves or the greedy amongst us. But a life lived in pursuit of material wealth and luxury of ever greater consuming, here St Paul says that life can exclude you from God's kingdom. 
Then there are idolaters, people who worship other gods, gods whose worship in those days was actually a state religion. And we have to remember that. Idolatry was honoured and respected and seen as a source of social cohesion. And as you'll see in chapters 8 to 10 of this letter, the temptation to continue to share in it, to continue to be included, in a sense, in the civic religion was very great. And worshipping gods of our own imagination is still a very real possibility for us. Then there are slanderers or revilers, and this speaks of those who speak abusively of others. And again, in some contexts, rhetorical competitions or advocacy in courts, it was respectable, respectable to run your opponent down. And drunkards, now we know, this is Australia after all, we know drunkards, don't we? It was a feature of their feasts then and of the parties that followed. It can be a feature of our party. But Christ's people are meant to be self-controlled always. And persistent open drunkenness, says Paul, will put you out of the church. And swindlers, well, that's somebody who robs by cheating, who could extort money by overcharging, exploiting shortages. And Corinth, like our society, was a get-rich-quick society, a grudging admiration for those who ripped others off. Now, all these behaviours were present in Corinthian pagan society, part of the old way of life, and were relatively or entirely acceptable behaviours, as many of them are in our society. And all, says St Paul, are incompatible with being Christ's. And Paul says the Christian community is to make it clear that these behaviours cannot continue to be practised by those who say they are believers. They're to make that clear by not associating with those who continue these practices, who won't make a break from the old way of life. And St Paul says here they're not even to eat with them. And meals then as now were an important way of communicating social acceptance. And in Corinth, meals were an important part of the social networks of the wealthy, Eating with peers, important for the maintenance and expression of your social status. And eating with peers is pretty important for us still. See, Paul's talking about withdrawing from anything that communicates acceptance or approval to the person who reckons themselves a Christian even though their behaviour is persistently sinful. So Paul's not talking about private judgment, but communicating the community's judgment that such behaviours put you outside the community of Jesus. And Paul's actually clear here, isn't he, that it's everyone's responsibility to communicate that judgment. There's to be no confusion in anyone's mind that those kinds of behaviours that God's word says makes their profession of faith empty and threatens their salvation are somehow okay or not important, able to be overlooked. And brothers and sisters, there should be no confusion in your mind tonight that those behaviours are in any way acceptable amongst God's saved people. And again, Paul is not talking about the church trying to force its standards or judgments on the non-Christian society, but he is insisting that there are limits, that there are behavioural as well as doctrinal boundaries to Christian communities, 
to being a Christian. What business of it is mine, he says, to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? And that question expects the answer, yes. God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. To be a Christian and thus part of a Christian community is to place yourself under the rule of Christ and under the discipline of the standards of God's word. To be a Christian community is to be committed together to those standards, to confess that those saved by Jesus live by Jesus' words. Together obey all that our Lord Jesus has taught us. That's what it is to be his disciple. And to be a Christian community is to take responsibility together to maintain the rule of Christ's word amongst us. Those outside, says St Paul, verse 13, God will judge. And we should remember that and share the gospel with them. But the church together, verse 12b, is to judge, set standards of behaviour for those inside the church. And we must enforce them by excluding from God's people those who persistently ignore and keep on breaking those standards. We have to, quoting Deuteronomy, remove the evil person from amongst us. Anything less gives people a false sense of their spiritual state, blinds them to their danger. See, at the end here, Paul quotes Deuteronomy without introduction because it self-evidently applies to Christian congregations. It was a command given in Deuteronomy to preserve God's people as God's holy people. The response the people were to make when confronted by flagrant breaking of the commands of God and ignoring of the requirements of the covenant which overthrew God's rule of his people. It was the response that would maintain their identity as the saved people of God, enjoying the blessing of relationship with God by living according to the word of God. As in the Old Testament, so in the New. The people of God are responsible for maintaining their identity, their collective identity, as God's saved people, enjoying the blessings of relationship with the living God by removing from their midst those whose behaviour shows that they've repudiated the rule of God's word, who would rather trust themselves than trust God and not humble themselves before his judgments. And now, as I said at the beginning, this chapter can make us feel uncomfortable with its insistence on behavioural standards and insistence on our collective responsibility to take action to maintain those standards, to maintain clear limits to the behaviour acceptable in those who call themselves Christians. You know, we might have thought where Paul is urging the Corinthians to act against someone whose behaviour the society around them condemned, that Paul was just concerned about PR, with the reputation of the community. But as the chapter goes on, it's clear, isn't it, that Paul is concerned with something much deeper, concerned to maintain the identity of Jesus' people as the holy people of God by insisting that to be saved by the death of Jesus, we must live our lives relying on the word of Jesus, lives guided by his word, by God's word, not our own desires. And that means we need to confront whatever might stop us from practising in our life together what our Lord commands through his apostle here. So 
We need... Yeah, you're good. We need uh, to confront the moral relativism that seeped into our own thinking and sapped our moral vigour. See, right and wrong are not just someone's opinion. They are revealed in God's word. And we should not deceive ourselves that behaviours God's word condemns can somehow be okay for us. So look at that list again. Sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, verbal abusiveness, drunkenness, swindler. Are there any of these you are practising perhaps secretly? Not just slipping up in and then repenting of, grieved and ashamed to have dishonoured your Lord, but practising and telling yourself it'll be okay that there's no need to change because God accepts you as you are. If you are thinking like that, you need to repent. Even if no one else knows, even if the church never acts, or you leave, as people do, as soon as someone finds out, leave to seek out a congregation which is more tolerant. You need to repent. Practising those things that God's word forbids is not okay. So it's not okay to keep practising sex outside marriage with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Not okay to keep bullying people at work or in your family with angry words. It's not okay, say, to fuel your greed by indulging in gambling. God sees and knows, and it is not your judgement that will prevail, but his Not your word that rules amongst his people, but his. So repent. The sacrifice of Christ, our Passover, gloriously means even your proud insistence in defying God can be forgiven. If you will humble yourself, say God's in charge, cease your sinning and ask for mercy. And the rest of us, need to repent of tolerating amongst us those who want to keep on doing these things and say they're Christians. Now that may make us uncomfortable, confront our desire to live our faith in a way that's acceptable to our society, live our faith as a purely private, personal matter. Our Lord Jesus teaches us that our Heavenly Father is not willing that one of his little ones should perish. Matthew eighteen fourteen, God has saved us into a family, a community of brothers and sisters for whose well-being, God says, we have a responsibility. He expects us to act to preserve their lives by rebuking their sin, by providing no comfort to those who say they're part of God's family but want to keep on disobeying God. This is not something we can leave just to the elders. It's to be the concern of every believer. You see, Jesus' first word in Matthew 18, 15, when he speaks about dealing with this, is to each of us individually. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. We have to see, every one of us, that we have real responsibility to promote the welfare of our brothers and sisters by helping them turn away from sin. 
which means, of course, that we will need to confront our lazy lovelessness. To not act individually and corporately is to fail to love. It's to fail to love the offender, the congregation, the society in which we live and our Lord. Where God's word is so clear that those who practice these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God, not share in eternal life, inaction is really to say to someone, you have reckoned your brother and sister, it's to say to them, you can go to hell, but it is no business of ours. Now there is no love in that. Inaction also shows no love for the congregation, no concern that their life and relationships be shaped by the life-giving word of God. Inaction will lead to their life being corrupted, their identity lost. Action against open, persistent sin, by contrast, preserves the congregation as the people of Christ, as God's temple, as saved people. And to act also shows love for our community. What a turn-off from the gospel it is when people see those called Christians doing things even they don't approve of. Think of the right anger and contempt generated by the protection of pedophiles in churches. And it's also a turn-off from the gospel when they're ripped off in business by someone who calls themselves a Christian or subjected to persistently angry abuse or snide sexist asides by someone who calls themselves a Christian. And seeing someone who calls themselves a Christian getting repeatedly drunk or having sex outside marriage, living just like them, that just confuses them about what God's re- God requires, hardens them to the gospel's call to repent. To not deal with sin is to fail to love your unsaved neighbours. To act against sin is to love those yet to respond to the gospel. And to act is to show love, show love for Jesus. You see, it's to show love for Jesus because people who call themselves Christians bear Jesus' name, his reputation in the world. Now, we might like to think, as we often do because it's an excuse, that people distinguish between Jesus and his claims and the behaviour of Christians. But they don't, do they? And if you've talked to them, you know they don't, especially where they're looking for a reason not to engage with Jesus. We protect his reputation when we encourage each other to live by his word and insist that all who carry his name do live by his word. Tolerating sin in yourself or in our community is to mock the seriousness with which God shows he takes sin by offering Jesus on the cross for our sins. How could we be indifferent to the reputation of the one who loved us and died to give us life? How could we want to make a mockery of his sacrifice by persisting in sin, sins for which he died? So, brothers and sisters, confront your reason for inaction And let's live a life of love by being real about right and wrong, 
being real that our God, not us, sets the standards. By being real about our responsibility to maintain the standards and to not keep sinning ourselves and to not let our brothers or sisters deceive themselves that they will be safe where they ignore or reject them. And let's live a life that actually celebrates freedom, the freedom, the salvation our Lord Jesus has given us through his death, the freedom to live a life of wholehearted commitment and faithfulness to our loving Lord and his rule of our lives by his good word. That good word that calls us to trust him, to turn away from sin and to love one another as he has loved us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, with shame we confess that we can know this word and so often fall short. We can fall short ourselves by tolerating sin in our lives even though we confess that Christ has died for us. And we can fall short by not loving our brothers and sisters enough to bring up their open sin with them to seek to turn them away from the sin that would drive them away from you. Forgive us, we pray, and gracious God, move us to love. Move us to want to live holy lives together that delight in doing your goodwill, knowing that it is good, the way of life, the way of flourishing. Now, Father, work in us by your spirit so that we love what is right. And our Father, we pray, give us the courage and love to be together your holy people, to have our identity shaped by the cross of Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.